And people routinely ask me, where's the market going? I said, nowhere. It's staying exactly where it is geologically uh, Mm -hmm. and uh, geographically. Once more onto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome back to another exciting second hour of The Personal Wealth Coach, where we will talk in the amazing and exciting things about things like the difference between what is it when we say macro factors. Yes, it sounds like some kind of diet, doesn't it? Are you into macro dieting? What? What? Um, uh, Macrobiotics. No, that's not an economic term. Uh, macro photography? No, that's really not it either. Okay, we have a question from Steve. And this question from Steve is macro factors. What does this term mean when fund managers consider it stocks and bonds? Macro means big. When you do macro photography, it's a little bit of an oxymoron because you're making little things big. So you're really doing micro photography, but making it big. It's really strange. I just had a macro camera. Well, yeah, but I only use it for micro things. Okay. Well, macro in the economy, when a, when a money manager is talking, a fund, mutual fund manager, a fund manager, when they say, when I consider the macro effects, I need to consider whatever. All that means is it's bigger than the company or the entity that I'm either lending or buying. If I'm buying ownership in a company and I'm considering macro effects, I'm saying, what's the whole economy look like? Not just what is this company trying to do? Uh, Because if the company is trying to, um, I don't know, train phone operators in uh, 2001, this is by phone operators, I mean the people you got when you would push the number zero. Younger generations, when I say phone operators, they're like, that's anybody that uses a phone. They're just operating it, right? No, someone had to help you operate the phone before. You had to ask someone for assistance and they would do things on the other end which were magical and obtuse and you would suddenly be talking to someone on the other side of the planet. Well, they kind of phased out and were replaced by computers. Um, If you were looking at a company that had been extremely profitable, their earnings are through the roof and they've been training uh, telephone operators for the last two decades, they are the premier telephone operator trainer and you wanted to invest in them, You might want to look at the macro effects of, oh, that whole technology of people pushing buttons and pulling plugs and putting them in other places to connect people across countries is not the way of the future. So when it comes to bonds, if bonds, by the way, a lot of people have a lot of problem with bonds. They just don't understand them from one into the other. And we're not going to try to make you understand bonds today, but we're going to give you a little bit of just tiny bit of understanding. A bond is a loan that you are giving someone or something. That's all it is. It is a loan. They are giving you their bond that they will pay it back. My word is my bond. So you are buying their oath with a loan. You are saying, you will pay me interest on this. If the overall market interest rate environment is changing and you're giving a loan to an individual, the interest rate isn't just based on the credit of that individual. If you say, I'm going to give you $10,000, you're my good friend, I'm going to charge you 2%, except then you look around and you say, why would I charge him 2% when I can get 5% at a bank? No, I'm going to charge you 5%. Well, that's a macro view on a loan to someone who doesn't 
I mean, shouldn't it exist in a vacuum? It's just a loan to an individual, right? Why should it be a market rate for that loan? Well, that's the macro look. There, it's important. Uh, you, if you make a deal in a closed loop, you could be the lady whose husband died and who sold the 1969 Corvette for $500 because it doesn't run. Um, looking a little bit more macro than that might help you. Uh, that's, that is what the macro factor means when talking about stocks and bonds. And, and from a perspective of understanding of economics, that term is vital to understand at the beginning. Because there's microeconomics, and that deals with what an individual may be doing at any given time, down to the individual level. How much money did you spend on uh, a soft drink? Or how much money did a company earn in earnings? That's microeconomics, because it's small, and it's not really totally, completely related to the macro. It's affected by it. And so understanding the difference between those two becomes fundamental in understanding the rest of this. And unfortunately, this isn't taught well. Uh, and the fact that we have macro being thrown around for so many things. A macro is a thing you record on your computer to make it do stuff for you. A macrobiotic is where you eat this stuff and it's great for your tummy. Um, um, yeah, macro in economics just means big. Big. Why don't we say big? Well, because we want to sound smart. And so we are going to say words that don't mean any of the other meanings of the word in any other place because we decided that's how it will be. And instead of saying we have a high return, we'll talk about alpha because Greek seems to be a good language to talk about unless you're Greek and then your economy isn't that good. Sorry. <clears throat> now I have wrapped up the answer to that question um, and insulted all of the Greek listeners in the process. Thank you. And does that make you a rapper? Uh, yes, I rapped it uh, very thoroughly in the pre-rhyming days of rapping, back when okay. it was only about presents. Okay. <clears throat> now, what do you have for us today? Oh, well, I was listening to you very carefully. Um, actually, uh, one of the things that's going on out there is the, and I, and I know I've talked about this before, but it's important. The negativity in the market is so intense at this point. I agree. This is psychologically the most important thing to talk about, is the pessimism and negativity. So you have my complete, complete agreement in what you're about to say. And there's a lot of evidence of people leaving the stock market, which is, by the way, why year to date, everything except the S&P 500 and to a lesser extent, the NASDAQ is down. Um, on the other hand, a certain amount of faith is in order here. And Got I think the, the yeah. issue is we do not have an effective leader in the United States right now. Uh, for for better or worse, it doesn't take a political scientist to agree with that. Look around uh, at what's happening in Washington. There's no leadership from any party at the moment. We got a lot of chaos, and this is one of those time periods when everything I see out there looks so negative that, in hindsight, if I go back to other times when I've seen such negativity, a decade later or five years later, I think to myself, "Man, I wish I had been smart enough to invest more during that period of time." Yeah, and it is it is a peculiar way of approaching it. There's no guarantee things will get better in the future. However, historically, I can say they have. Once we hit this level of negativity, things tend to get better. Um, Mostly, people that are rational and reasonable get fed up with the chaos and tell their representatives, "Hey, cut it out." Um, and there may be a lot of that going on right now. It's hard to tell, but we really need to cut it out in Washington, guys. This is this is silliness. 
Sorry. That, that was yeah, my and two cents. We probably got some more years of silliness in front of us, but this is one of those times uh, when looking back, I can see that it's more comfortable to sit on the sidelines than it is to get into the fight or get into the struggle or get into whatever's going on. I don't mean fight, which is an indication of probably the most powerful indication we have seen over history that markets, whether a market is high or low is how pessimistic people are. The more pessimistic people are, the lower the market is. Interestingly enough, despite the fact that over the last three years, the market has done very, the stock market has done very well. Um, and over the last year, it's done very well. Morningstar, which is tends to be pretty accurate about these things, the timing is, is always uncertain, but they tend to be pretty accurate, suggests that based on current earnings, the stock market is about 8% undervalued. Now, does that mean yet it's going to go up? Uh, the thing about being having an undervalued, we're value investors, and I can tell you that investing in value just because something is worth more than you paid for doesn't mean that somebody else will buy it from you for what it's really worth in the immediate future. You can wait a long time for things for, for the public to recognize the value. But this is a time that separates one group of people from another. And this is a time when it's good to stay the course and keep on going and have some degree of faith that things will keep on going too. Uh, it's, it's a little hard to do if you read the headlines at all. But I believe... Uh, we'll probably come out of this a lot better than we went into it. That's my general belief. As a matter of fact, my personal view, and there are certainly going to be people who would disagree with that, is that we are in the Roaring Twenties. And for whatever it's worth, we are very much duplicating the events of the Roaring Twenties, not only, on, as Jake described a few minutes ago, in macroeconomics and in, in cultural, but even in the market. Yeah. And I suspect we are going to see some massive increases in productivity in the near future. I don't forget, I forget which, is it Chipotle? One of the restaurants that sells Mexican food. Apparently, their mainstay is some kind of uh, edible bowl of salad or something. Mm -hmm. And they were demonstrating this week for people who wanted to see it. They had an open house and demonstrated that that could be completely automated. That the bowl could be eaten in an automated fashion? No, no, no. That's the usually when I'm watching a movie, I feel like I'm eating in an automated fashion. Yes, but, but yeah. the the they were demonstrating how the ingredients are put in bins and you select which ingredients you want in your bowl of food, uh, edible bowl of food. And this this machine totally produces the bowl and hands it, basically pops it out for somebody to hand to you. Yeah, I see that happening. And I see it happening in a lot of places. And I think by the end of this decade, we will finally get used to seeing it happening in a lot of places. Yeah. And this is a major socioeconomic change is occurring and it's about to get more so. The, I mentioned this earlier about the operators and the silly idea of what you would buy and the macro effect of that. One of the things that did not happen, and it sounds like I've changed the subject, I'm still on the same subject. One of the things that didn't happen is that operators were not laid off in mass from AT&T or any of the other big telephone companies. That didn't happen. So how did they replace them all with computers so that now generations later, people don't know that when you hit zero, it did anything at all. Why would you dial zero? Why would you dial zero today? <laughs> uh, it's a strange thing to think about. So it used to be a big deal. So why why were there no layoffs? Why didn't we have we had hundreds of thousands of people employed doing nothing but that? What happened to them? Well, as they retired, 
As they switched to other positions, they were slowly replaced with the computer and the automation because it took that long for the technology to advance. They just stopped hiring new people into the business, very much like truck driving now. It isn't because they said, we're going to stop hiring operators. It isn't. If you look at the, uh, uh, the, the newspapers of the 90s through the early 2000s, there was a push by the big phone companies, a hard push to hire as many operators as they can because they couldn't get enough. It was a hard job. People yelled at you when you got on the phone with them. They hit zero and they're yelling at you for whatever reason and you had to put up with it. Nobody wanted to do that job. So fewer and fewer people did it, and they had to pay more and more and more to the people that were doing it until the technology was less expensive, and then it got a lot less expensive. And when we look at the average age of truck drivers today, and there's different, different stats on this. I've seen two different numbers. I've seen 57 and 62 as the average age of truck drivers. Um, so we can, we'll go to the lowest of those and say, or the lower of those and say 57 is the average age of truck drivers out there. And I think that's a pretty reasonable age. Anybody that has seen truck drivers knows that there very few of them are in the younger category. Why? Because there are other things that pay well that younger people have been doing. And there, if you look online, if you look at the back of almost every truck that you pass, you see hiring drivers. You hear the advertisements on late night television. You've heard them for the last 15 years. We don't have enough truck drivers. So expect that to slowly convert. When we're talking about automating a restaurant where the bowl is made when you push the buttons, it's the same thing. It isn't because, hey, we'll just get rid of all these employees that we have sitting in the back. They can't get employees to sit in the back. <laughs> There's not enough of them to go around. You can see it if you go to McDonald's. Yeah. They used to have, you go into a relatively busy McDonald's, there was three or four people at the counter taking orders, at the minimum two. Now you have three or four kiosks, actually four, the last one I walked into, where you walk up to and punch in your order and one person at the counter. And McDonald's is working very, very hard on automating the back office, the actual making of the hamburgers and so on. They're not there yet but they're working on it. It is one of those things that's um, almost certain to happen in the near future. Nothing is certain in the near future. So and I'm uh, going to throw in in the middle of this, we were talking about this. The When we go back to an earlier point, and I brought this up in the past when, when we're looking at demographics and workforce, uh, in the mid-1800s all over the planet, for some reason, we decided slavery was a bad idea. We can all agree it's a bad idea today, but for the entirety of human, human history up to that point, we all said, yeah, let's do that everywhere. It's not like it was. A, there were people that said, no, let's not, except for very little points in history. And there were always movements for anti-slavery throughout history. Uh, I mean, there's never been a culture ever anywhere we've discovered that didn't have slavery. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's this horrible ethical quandary of how did we all do that? No one alive exists that didn't have an ancestor that was a slave because it's so ubiquitous throughout human history. So how did we all, you know, like those waves of technology that I said, you know, suddenly all the cars drive themselves across the desert, everybody all at once, the whole year they did it. 
That's why all the countries in the world, not unanimously, there are still some countries that have slavery. It's just not legal there, uh, at least not publicly legal there. The McCormick Reaper came along. Why did the McCormick Reaper come along? Well, Cyrus McCormick was a blacksmith and we go blah, blah, blah. No, we'll not de delve deep into that. Why did he develop it? Because we were passing laws in the United States that made slavery more expensive. We said, hey, we're not importing anymore. This is bad. And this was a unanimous, not unanimous decision. It was a majority decision in the United States, including among the southern states, that they shouldn't be bringing more people over, taking them from freedom and putting them into slavery. And so they thought, okay, well, just people that were born that way, because they don't know any better. It's not any better, but we were, just, I don't know, it was a long process. It made slavery more expensive. It was a smaller market for it. It was only the people born into it. And a lot of them were, were running away. I imagine that. Um, so Cyrus McCormick in Virginia, this is the South. This is where slavery was king at the time, developed the reaper. And it was originally only for wheat. There were other machines that came along later. And the technology of the McCormick reaper spread across the planet relatively quickly over decades, but at the time, that is like light speed. And it made it universally less expensive than slavery to do things. So the increase in the price of slavery is what led to the abolishment of slavery. The very value, the extra value that was held in the idea of slavery is what led to its collapse. And that's amazing, and it's beautiful, and it's fantastic. It's still got vestiges that are hanging out we've got technology that needs to come along and improve that the same thing is happening right now in restaurants it's not with slavery it isn't you know we're not wage slaves but no most people most teenagers with they're given a choice to go be an intern at a tech company or to go work at mcdonald's you know what they're going to choose if they don't have that choice all right i'll go work at mcdonald's but there's a lot of other places i could work too mcdonald's knows that so they've been increasing the price if you look around the country the price the hourly wage at fast food restaurants is actually a pretty respectable thing. And this is including places that didn't raise the minimum wage. We're not just talking about California, who said $15 an hour. In Belton, Texas, there is no change. The, the minimum wage in Texas is $7.65 an hour. I would challenge you to go find anywhere where a job is being advertised that will pay that little. So the minimum wage has been set by the market. The market has said, no, that's too low. We're not going to take that. There's not enough us to go around. You got to pay us more. And because of that, the very value that is growing there, we can't find enough people, even at the higher pay, to come stand behind the counter and push buttons because there's other jobs that will pay more. And if you look at the turnover rate in employees at McDonald's, this isn't new news. This is something that's been in effect for decades and decades since the beginning of McDonald's. The vast majority of people that work at McDonald's only work there a few years. And everybody listening says, well, of course, why would you work there for decades? Well, you got into a management position and that's the point, is that nobody says my life career will be flipping burgers at McDonald's. You could be a short order cook at Denny's and make a really get respect and do the same thing. So this is, this is where a shift is occurring. The fact is that when there is too few of a commodity and the price gets unmanageable, we find alternatives 
and that that is my wrap up of the uh, of the the whole of why technology leads to weirdness. I, I guess I could add a flip to that, a little piece of that. Every generation, every generation looks back at the generation before or two generations back and finds something that they were doing that is just insanely unethical. Whether that's Agent Orange in Vietnam or um, birth control or go back farther. Each generation can say, oh, they were doing this horrible thing one generation back, and everybody was doing it. This generation, there's smoking as part of that, where people kind of pretty much understand that if you do it, it will be bad for you. It's, it's not like that was unknown in the past, but it's, a, it's pretty well understood now by our culture that smoking is bad for you. So we have this shift of, wait a minute, when I was a child, I sat in the restaurant. When you were a child, the restaurant had even a deeper layer of smoke because there weren't smoking section, non-smoking section. When I was a child, we had a smoking section and a non-smoking section. And what that did to the restaurant is caused the cloud to develop on the other side and then be blown by the air conditioner and the fan into the other side. So you had like these weather patterns in the cloud above your head as they swirled around the restaurant. Um, and we've all decided, hey, that's a bad idea. You probably shouldn't take your newborn baby to the restaurant that has the smoke patterns in, in the air. Um, why? Well, technology. Again and again and again, the marketplace shifts when people understand a market better. It, it may take a while, but it happens. When people enough people are educated on something to create the demand for it or remove a demand for it, everything changes. And that we're experiencing that again at a high rate across a whole area of things, a uh, whole area of things. And it's just, it's an amazing time to be alive and to be aware. Don't lose sight of that in the craziness of everything that goes on, looking at what's happening in Washington right now is momentous. What's happening in the bond market is momentous. Even if it hurts right now, keep in mind that this is something that is likely to be something you can talk about for the next several decades. More. This, we live in momentous times. Welcome to the uh, curse and the blessing. Uh, how, how, I've been talking on my uh, monologue here, so I will allow you to take the next subject. Oh, I'm, I'm enjoying listening to you. It's, I learned a lot listening to you. That there's, um, then, we, then, did, we mentioned something ahead. in the newsletter that I think is important. There is a perception, apparently, in the public's mind that we have high inflation. Even though we're kind of beyond it at this point. Well, the, the, the whole issue is I started listening to people who are not in the same business we're in, they're not economists, and they're talking about how high prices are consistently. Right. So their perception is a couple of years ago, prices were much lower and so, and they're much higher now. Therefore, we have high inflation. Right. And we did. Now. And it is inflated. We, we on the other hand, are looking at it month to month and saying, wow, uh, the beginning of the year, inflation was running along at 0. 0.03%. 0.3%. 0.3%. I'm sorry. Uh, and month to month. And then it dropped to 0.2%. Now for the last couple of months, it's been at 0.1%, which means Inflation, current inflation, has come down to 1.2%. But because we don't want to get into deflation, not 1.2%, yeah, yeah, 1.2% a year. Because we don't want to get into deflation, prices are very unlikely to return to where they were three years ago. Right. It would require us to move backwards as far as prices go. And that's happening in certain markets, just as a side note. If you look at electric yeah. vehicles, uh, the new technology market, you're seeing price drops. Right. 
The problem with that is that would take a major recession at the very least and maybe a depression. And we don't want that. So people's perception is based on a window of time that may not be appropriate for figuring out whether we're having inflation or not. Now, people, that's one of the reasons I mentioned earlier that is cited for people spending a lot of money right now is because they're perceiving high inflation. Right. When it's basically behind them. So the prices are not going up very fast. Matter of fact, the prices are going down for things like traveling to Europe. Yeah. Um, Buying a new car. So that's that's where we are mentally. Now, we tend to do the same thing with investments, by the way. Yeah. Um, we have this tendency to see that something has gone up in value a lot. Therefore, we should buy it. That is a profound investing mistake. Yes. It's the opposite of buy low, sell high. Buying things because they are up means that you bought them when they're expensive. That's probably not Uh, a good idea. Right. And people routinely ask me, where's the market going? I said, nowhere. It's staying exactly where it is geologically uh, Mm -hmm. and uh, geographically. And they don't like to hear that. They say, I've heard that it's going up. I can say that the market rose. It is, for instance, roughly 12, the S&P 500 is roughly 12% higher than it was at the beginning of the year. But I can't tell you where it's going and, and because I'll, the future is absolutely uncertain. We'll, we'll explain that. This is, this is a good one. The concept of going implies physics. If you're in a car and you're driving down the highway, you're going somewhere. If you hit the brakes as hard as you can, you still can't stop in a split second. Now, if you slam into something, you can stop in a split second. There's still a lot of little movement inside, but you won't like that. No, you won't enjoy that. So there's something called momentum and going in the real world. And this is our experience. And we try to apply that to the market. The market is an auction and you can get momentum at an auction. If you get a bunch of people in there that have been drinking and they're here to support a cause and they don't care how much they spend, you can get the market, that auction market, to go pretty high. It's, it's true. You can get momentum in there and you can look at the crowd and say, whoa, this is where that, that auction's going. But when you get a larger auction where you can't unanimously measure how many people have been drinking, not drinking, what their intent is, are they all here for the same reason? So if you're at a, an auction, everybody at that auction is thinking, I may buy today. When you're in the stock market, that is not the case. Not everyone in the stock market is saying, I may buy today. They may have already invested everything they have. They have a 401k. It's in the market. They're not buying with that. It's already bought. There is zero chance that they are buying today. It's already there. It's not like other auctions. So measuring the momentum of a large auction, you can't do it. There isn't a momentum. It's a bunch of people thinking different things. You can say there's kind of a trend in, those, in that chaotic thinking. But when people say this is what the market is doing today, the reality is they're saying that a bunch of people's averaged actions amounted to something. It's like if everybody's on the highway right now, where are they going? Where are, where are people traveling to today? Answer that question. <laughs> we can say, well, a lot of places, they, there's no, when you average them all together, they're not really going anywhere. There, if you average everybody's destination, it's someplace that doesn't exist as a destination. Think about all of the trips happening at all the places in the United States today, geographically. Average that together. Where is everybody going? Oh, someplace in the middle of Idaho for some reason. I don't, I don't know why. Well, you average Los Angeles and New York into there. <laughs> well, they're in Idaho. Of course, that's where the people are traveling to today. No, 
And this is why we say we can't say the market is going somewhere. We can say this is where it averaged out to. But even that is misleading because if you're talking about traveling, the people that went to Los Angeles don't feel like they're in Idaho and neither do the people in Manhattan. But that's the average. This is also back to that original question about macro factors. When you're talking about in aggregate, when economists talk about the average, this is true when we're talking about the market and indexes as well. Whatever that index experienced is probably not what you experienced, unless you are 100% invested in something that's supposed to track that index. And even that, when you look closely, the return on your fund that's tracking an index is not exactly the same as the index. It's impossible. There's internal expenses. You have to do transactions. You have to buy things and sell things, and that costs money. And you can't buy it and sell it at the same speed that the index does because they're not actually buying or selling. They're mathematically introducing securities. And in What is an index? Well, it's done by a media company to try to measure movement in the market. So they say, let's average the prices of these stocks together to see which way they went. But those companies are a little bigger. Let's give them a higher weighting in the average. They didn't have to pay money to buy it. It's just mathematical. If they remove a company from the index and replace it with another, they didn't have to sell that company and buy a new one. They just mathematically removed it and replaced it with another. An index fund that's trying to track that index has to sell the stock and buy a new stock. And when it's removed from the index, all of the index funds have to sell it. So there's a phenomena that occurs in an index. When a company is added to a, to an index, the S&P 500, its stock price jumps. One day to the next, no changes inside the management of that company, no changes in their profitability or in their earnings. They just join the index. Well, a bunch of index funds are now buying them to put them in the index, and they're selling the one that left the index. So the act of being in the index changes the price, which means that the index, which is trying to measure the movement of the market, by measuring the market, changes it. It's kind of like physics in a different way, but it's all about attention. If we're talking about uh, the, the tiny quantum effects of particles in physics and you observe it and it changes what you're observing. In the market, that's the case too. When we observe the market to measure it, even in indexes, it changes the market that we're measuring. It's weird to think about that we as a, uh, as a group, by measuring the thing that we're doing, changes the thing that we're measuring. This isn't true when you're measuring a, a hundred meter um, dash. Got a 100-yard dash, it's going to be 100 yards. It's How do you measure that? Well, it's this long. Did it change the length when you measured it? No. But when you're changing something that is purely based on observational value, opinions people have. I have an opinion that it's worth this. You have an opinion that it's worth that. I'm going to put my money where my mouth is, and I'm going to buy it for the thing that I think it's worth. Well, then when we measure that and we say, okay, people think it's worth more, other people go, oh, they think it's worth more. Well, I think it's worth more too. I think it's even worth more than that. So that opinion change can change other people's opinion. This is behavior. This is how the market works. It isn't based in physics. You can, momentum investing isn't the same as momentum in a dump truck driving down the street at 60 miles an hour. It is very, very hard to stop and change to the opposite direction in that dump truck. There is time between the decision and it actually occurring. 
There are also physical events that have to occur. In the market, that does not exist. The market can have this perceived upward momentum or downward momentum, but it can change direction in a split second and go absolutely the opposite way because it's not a direction. It's a price change. And people have to really understand that. There's, this is funny because when you get to commentators on television or commentators about things, there's two realms of study that people feel like they can ask questions about anything. We've got a physics guy. You can ask him, why do you think politics in Washington are acting the way they do? You get an economist and you're like, oh, well, let's ask you about the, the politics in Washington. It's like, you think these things cover all. These The rules of physics cover all, or the rules of economics covers all. No, the economics rules are all conceptual and based inside our behavior. And the rules of physics are the opposite of that. They are the things that are not altered by our opinion, except possibly at the macro level. Huh. I, I'm going to alter the universe by thinking about it. Maybe, maybe I will. I can change the universe through my own actions only. There we go. Now, that's me been on a pulpit for, again, for a long time. And I didn't get, there's a, there's a study that I wanted to talk about for long COVID and for non-long COVID. Uh, that's fascinating. Um, I'll just throw that out there. This is an interesting subject. Um, uh, this week in um, the Lancet um, publication, the Lancet Respiratory Medicine, uh, the UK just published a massive study with a lot of people doing MRIs for people that were hospitalized for COVID. Um, there were a lot of people hospitalized for COVID. What they found is that 60% of the people that were hospitalized for COVID, that's not just getting COVID, but hospitalized. Generally speaking, that's a more critical care situation um, than otherwise. So 60% of the people that were hospitalized in an MRI six months later showed abnormalities in multiple organs, especially the brain and lungs, but not the heart. Okay, so that's the big surprise. It wasn't in the heart. The heart's no big deal. What about people that didn't have COVID or weren't hospitalized for COVID? 27% um, of people who'd never had the disease um, had changes in abnormalities in multiple organisms. O organisms. Organs, sorry. Uh, yes, they're multiple organisms. Um, so 60% who were hospitalized, 27% who didn't get it at all. That's a big enough difference in a large enough people to say that there are long-term consequences of severe COVID. We knew that already, but now we've got data to show it. And it's when we look at people that left the workforce that didn't come back to the workforce, this is a component. We've got other people joining the workforce that weren't in it before, but we still haven't gone back to the same percentage of the workforce employed that we did pre-COVID. There's early retirement. There's a lot of other things, but this is a major component. Okay. Now that was my two subject monologue and we're about out of time this is the personal wealth coach with jeff and jake mcclure uh this is the personal wealth coach and we do make uh other statements than really bad puns about songs uh we are uh, a a finance program as you would probably guess from the personal wealth coach being our title the Personal Wealth Coach is not just the title of the program. It's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. All right. Well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir? I would say that the SEC is a 
professionally dislikes almost everyone. Right. That is no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing? Because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is, and it's less disclosurable. It takes less time to do if it's just the same name. So we've been doing this program here uh, on this in, on this station, 1400 AM in Temple, since 1996. We've been doing this a long time, and we haven't been paid for it ever. Uh, we also Man. have not ever paid for it. So we've been doing this a long, long time, and the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel, for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational, and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were, and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education, which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think right. uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve. That's generally and portfolio management and portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, and so you can contact us locally voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people, no phone tree during the week at two, five, four, nine, four, seven, 11, 11. You can reach that line tool free at one, eight hundred nine, one, four, seven, five, two, six. That's eight hundred nine, fourteen plan. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given. Um, thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.